if we don't place you in a job and we don't give you a grant, we're going to guarantee for five years your salary at the median point for your major after graduation. So if you become a teacher and the starting salary for teachers in, in let's say you're in Texas is $40,000, we're going to guarantee that over those first five years you make $200,000. And if you don't, we're going to pay the difference. Welcome to Act Online, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. You just heard Dr. Pano Canellos, president of the new University of Austin in Texas, speaking on the importance of intellectual openness and dialogue that is free from leftist ideology on college campuses. Today on Act Online, Dylan Palman interviews Canellos to dig deeper than the social media hot takes to discover the truth of what the University of Austin in Texas is really all about. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as previous episodes on our website at acton.org slash podcast. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act Online is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Act in Line. My name is Dylan Pommen, and I'm re- a research fellow here at the Acton Institute and executive editor of our journal Markets and Morality. I'm joined today by Dr. Pano Canellos, president of the newly founded University of Austin. Dr. Canellos, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here and, and a great pleasure to hear somebody actually pronounce my name exactly the way I pronounce it. That's rare. Thank you. <laughs> I go to a Greek church, so I, I have, have practice. <laughs> um, so... Uh, to get right into it, uh, after your, your November 8 announcement on Barry Weiss's Substack, the University of Austin was a fixture of the weekly news cycle, a vast mix of more or less informed social media reactions, essays and articles, both supportive and critical, followed the announcement. Uh, so I'd like to start by just clearing the air a bit. One goal of UATX is to grant a graduate degree in entrepreneurship and leadership. Every entrepreneurial endeavor seeks to fill a perceived unmet need in the marketplace. So what is the University of Austin and one what unmet need in the market of higher education do you believe it will serve? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I, I, I like the way you frame that because this is an entrepreneurial enterprise. And it's one of the reasons we're starting with that program. So so you're right on target there. Um, if I were to if, let me begin from the perspective of principles. Okay. Um, I, you know, we believe very strongly that higher education um, has the responsibility to serve as, you know, both the, um, the the means through which society reflects upon its mores, its values, um, and the way it's the way it's governed, the way uh, the way society is constituted. That the purpose of higher education is to provide um, society and individuals the means to think more clearly about important issues. Um, in order to do that, we believe that universities have to be radically independent. Um, and, and that if universities are not independent in a core sense, meaning that, they're, that they lean too heavily in a political direction or they're uh, too excluding of, of multiple viewpoints, um, 
universities aren't serving their purpose. So what we're trying to do is start a university from the ground up that will be grounded in open inquiry and civil discourse as the guiding principles. That'll be a place where one's politics are practically irrelevant um, because we're focused on larger human questions. Um, I think most universities have these ideals somewhere in their DNA, um, but universities are not acting upon those principles vigorously enough for the times in which we live. Somewhat relatedly, in terms of the, the entre entrepreneurial opportunity, um, University of Austin boasts on its website about its novel financial model. Uh, with U.S. student loan debt at $1.7 trillion, new approaches to financing higher education are sorely needed today. What will be different about the costs and funding of UATX, and how does the fi this financial model fit with that broader principles and mission that you just outlined? Yeah. So I would say the one of the problems with the financial model of higher education right now is that um, it's bound by what we call the iron triangle. And that is the three points of the triangle for, for revenue are tuition, philanthropy, and then grants um, from various sources. Um, that model cannot keep up with the the rapidly increasing expense of delivering education. Um, so the gap between the kind of revenues that universities can count on and what they actually need to run their operations is widening every year. Now the top 20 or 30 universities are kind of in their own category. They have you know, endowments that make them, that kind of buffer them from these, from financial concerns. Um, although they still feel like they need to raise more and more money. Um, but the other 4,000 universities out there are pretty much all on the brink of financial disaster. Um, and we, we're seeing them start to drop. So, you know, how do we solve for that? How do we create a financial model that is sustainable for institutions and accessible for students? The first piece of it is really simple. You have to cut costs. You have to deliver what you deliver more uh, effectively and efficiently. Um, building an institution from the ground up allows you to do that. Um, we've learned many things from, from the pandemic. And one of them is that um, you don't need lots and lots of administrators on, on site, in person to run an organization. Um, so we're going to cut down the number of administrators and probably outsource most administrative functions that aren't directly engaging with students. So doing that to help decrease costs and to give us some flexibility and allow the market to set the price for what we do. Um, uh, so that's part of it. The other part is to think about um, not just inputs, uh, and that is the money that you collect from students and the money that you find to support their education, but to focus on outcomes as well. We can only lower the cost of providing higher education so far. Uh, our goal, our target is to have our tuition set at exactly half the price of Harvard and show how we can deliver an education at that price point. Maybe it's not going to be Harvard. It might be an average of the top elite schools, but just in, you know, as a kind of thumbnail um, uh, target, you know, half the price of Harvard will be our tuition. Um, so that's still pretty expensive. That means we're still probably going to have to, you know, charge $30,000 or so for tuition. Um, it's only worth it to students and their families to take on that kind of um, financial burden if the university is invested in the outcomes. 
Um, so what we're doing is we're aligning the outcomes with our financial model. We are going to be guaranteeing students um, either, and this is all in process right now. So if so, I don't want to be held entirely accountable to this uh, over time. Sure, because uh, we're working on the model, but uh, we're going to try and guarantee them one of three outcomes. Um, the first outcome would be um, the ability for all of our students to apply for seed money grants for their own entrepreneurial projects of up to $100,000. And the most promising projects will be funded by a fund that will will raise through the university. So if you're gonna spend $120,000 over four years on tuition and your university is willing to give you up to $100,000 to start your business or company at at the end end point, uh, you can see how, how things line up there in terms of incentives. We also are already partnering with dozens and dozens of companies, corporations, organizations um, that will allow us to guarantee placement for our students when they graduate. So if you don't go, if you don't apply for an entrepreneurial grant, um, we are most likely going to be able to place you in a job that is in your field. And then the third guarantee we want to make, and again, I'm not promising this yet because it's something we're still working on, but I think I think we may be able to achieve this, is that if we don't place you in a job and we don't give you a grant, we're going to guarantee for five years your salary at the median point for your major after graduation. So if you become a teacher and the starting salary for teachers in, in let's say you're in Texas is $40,000, we're gonna guarantee that over those first five years, you make $200,000. And if you don't, we're gonna pay the difference. Wow, okay. So that actually helps transition to my next question. Um, that's I, I'm I want to push more, but we we got limited time, so maybe I'll come back to things uh, at the end if if I have the time. Um, one of the recurring criticisms of higher education today, as you already mentioned, uh, is administrative bloat, which in turn has contributed to these inflated prices. Another common criticism, uh, more from academics, is the siloing off of academic disciplines from one another. Uh, so there's there's nothing truly universal about universities anymore. They're not contributing to uh, a common understanding of uh, humanity's grasp of of truth. Uh, here at Acton, uh, we're fans of the Dutch theologian and statesman Abraham Kuyper, uh, who founded the Free University of Amsterdam to be independent of both church and state. Uh, however, he also founded it upon a Calvinist worldview and structured it based on the anthropology underlining that worldview in a way that lent coherence to the separate faculties and sciences. So how will the University of Austin be structured, both in terms of administration and faculties, and how does that reflect its broader worldview? Well, we, we're not beginning with a Calvinist worldview. I hope that's not disappointing. Uh, uh, no, but, not my expectation. <laughs> <laughs> but I would, say, uh, I would say we're beginning with an Aristotelian um, worldview. Um, we're looking, our entire undergraduate curriculum is structured around Aristotle's taxonomies of knowledge. Right? Okay. Uh, and the idea is that we're, we want to, um, as we try to create free and independent thinkers, people who have the critical capacities to, to, um, to be prudent in life, make the right decisions, uh, identify what's desirable and, and better, um, we're going, we're going to employ a curriculum and it's going to be a common curriculum for all undergraduates. It's going to move through beginning with speculative philosophy through natural philosophy to practical philosophy. So we're building a core curriculum of courses across the first two years that begins with epistemology, then moves to metaphysics, then moves to astronomy, geography, 
moves on to biology uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and beyond that into ethics and politics and that, um, this entire curriculum will be uh, undertaken by all of our students and it will be taught by all of our faculty. So to go to your point about a kind of gen genuine culture, a common culture, our faculty, no matter what their, um, let's say disciplinary background is, they're all going to be teaching in the common core which will be essentially a great book's common core around these themes. And we're doing that because we think that faculty should model um, the same intellectual journey that our students are on, which means going beyond what your particular area of interest and expertise is and looking broadly at as many areas of human knowledge as we can encompass. So they, they all kind of need to be generalists in that sense. We want them to be generalists and also to have uh, their own um, specialties. So after the first two years, rather than having majors, we, we're forming what we're calling centers of inquiry, centers of intellectual inquiry that'll be thematic, kind of like think tanks or institutes. And there'll be centers around education, around politics, around technology and engineering. So we want our scholars to be able to contribute very specifically in through their fields in those academic centers, but then also teach generally in the core. Okay, so relatedly, and and maybe you can uh, correct me if I'm mistaken here, I know next summer in 2022, you plan to launch uh, a summer program taught, uh, as far as I understand, by your three founding faculty fellows. Uh, is that correct? Uh, Drs. Peter Bogosian, uh, Ian Hersey Ali, and uh, Kathleen Stock. Um, uh yeah, we just added a fourth, Rob Henderson. Oh, okay. Who, uh, who's uh, who's doing great work on his? He wrote the this. He's writing this book on luxury beliefs and that. He's at Cambridge, so Rob's just joined us as a fourth fellow this very week. I, I have this question more relates to the the other three then, um, and it's interesting to know that we we have a, a fourth already. Um, coming from a religious background, I remember long before there was such a thing as wokeness, uh, which has been all the buzz today and a lot of the press, uh, even about University of Austin, has been about it not being captive to, you know, woke wokeness, cancel culture, woke narratives, that sort of thing. But I remember two decades ago when I first entered college uh, that deeply religious, usually conservative parents and students were commonly skeptical of state university, universities precisely because they didn't want their deeply held values to be the object of attack and mockery by tenured professors. Uh, this trope was uh, as recently portrayed as in uh, the 2014 film God's Not Dead, which I do not personally recommend, but it serves to illustrate my point that this is still kind of in, in uh, a certain uh, demographic. It's still part of their mindset. Um, now, Dr. Bogosian is author of a book titled A Manual for Creating Atheists, Professor Ali, known for her criticism of fundamentalist Islam, but also for being famously atheist herself. And Professor Stock, despite coming under heavy criticism for her comments on transgender identity, uh, is a feminist scholar who's been described by the Times as a, quote, left-wing lesbian. Now, I know as an academic that, that people, you know, every professor has to teach things they don't necessarily believe themselves, and good professors can do that. Um, but I would expect that religious conservatives would be a natural demographic group looking for the sort of school that the University of Austin aspires to be. So what would you tell interested parents and students who, who look at this faculty list and uh, might see very little apparent common ground with their own values and worldview? Well, I would say that the you know, initial founding faculty fellows we have, um, 
were not selected as because of their political views or even their worldviews. They were selected because these are people who've shown great courage mm. in times of where, where institutions are trying to suppress ideas. So they, so they are in many ways are kind of, uh, they're sort of heroic figures. And so we wanted to <laughs> bring them on to kind of embody the spirit of the institution. Um, uh, and I would just say they don't represent in any purposeful way, let's say the, the, the overall choices that we're going to make about faculty. Um, we're going to have faculty across the entire political spectrum, across the spectrum of beliefs. Um, we believe uh, that mixing people together in a university setting who come from um, diverging um, backgrounds, diverging belief systems is uh, a critical component of, of education. I mean, it, we just believe that wholeheartedly. Um, I will say the one thing that I think universities has lost that we're trying to replace or try to replenish is um, being alive to the possibility of the transcendent. Mm. And I think this is what, you know, th this is the common point of contact that our faculty and our, our <clears throat> staff and students will have that, you know, we are all trying to aim for something higher. And in some cases, that'll be a sort of ras the rational pursuit of truth. In other cases, that'll be the pursuit of other things, metaphysical and otherwise. Um, but we believe that higher education needs to attend to the higher things in life. And so um, that's the common ground, I think we'll see. You know, that somebody like Peter Bogosian, who is a, a very dear friend of mine, um, we disagree on practically everything when it comes to beliefs, uh, personal beliefs. Um, um, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, people ask me my politics. I'm like, they're really simple. I believe in God and I like old books. I mean, that's <laughs> as complicated as I am. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but, but Peter and I both agree that like getting into the scrum of conversation and dialogue and throwing ideas around and together in a, in a, in a format where you have, you know, mutual trust and you, and you do so in a kind of dignified way, that's what the life of the mind should be about. Mm. So, um, that's what we stand for. Since you mentioned Robert Henderson, um, could you tell me just a little bit about him and his his work and his research as well? Yeah, he's a, he's at Cambridge University right now, finishing up his PhD. But he's been, you know, already a very important uh, cultural um, commentator. Uh, and he's uh, he his work has the most. I think the, the 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 part of his work that's had the most impact is defining um, the category of luxury beliefs. So Rob. Mm -hmm comes from a very, came from a very challenged background. He was, he grew up in the foster care system. He was, grew up very poor. He moved from house to house. He describes living out of garbage bags because he had to mm. take his stuff with him so many times. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, he's a young man who's, who's gone on to become a PhD student at Cambridge. <clears throat> and his, so he's particularly sensitive to what he sees as the elite classes imposition of beliefs um, upon society that that negatively impact people and let's say lower socioeconomic strata or otherwise, and um, uh, and you know where where people where the elites are insulated from the consequences of their beliefs. So mm. uh, he's a real trenchant social critic, very uh, remarkable young man, and we're thrilled to have him on board. Excellent, excellent. Thank you. Uh, in your announcement on November eighth. 
you stated, it is not just that we are failing students as individuals, we are failing the nation. Uh, you've touched on this a little bit, but I'd like uh, to hear more about you know what civic value does, or at least should, higher education add to a liberal democracy like the United States? And how do you see the University of Austin as filling that role? Well, I mean, look, I think it's beyond obvious now that that the major social crisis we're facing is one of of polarization, tribalism, uh, of people turning away from each other and against one another. And I think universities have a responsibility to to, um, help us change course, all right, to help bring people together in conversation and dialogue, to help us have developed the tools to be critical of our own beliefs so that we can, we can, what we hold, the beliefs that we hold, we hold responsibly. Um, And, uh, you know, I don't know what other institution we can turn to in society today that can um, move us back towards a position of tolerance, a position of um, empathy and understanding. Um, I think universities have a tremendous responsibility to to shape young people in ways um, that will move us back towards one another rather than turning away from one another. If I may end on a provocative note, uh, in the 1997 film, Good Will Hunting, one of my favorites, uh, Matt Damon's title character has a confrontation with a Harvard grad student at a bar in which he tells his opponent, you dropped 150 grand on education that he could have gotten for a $1.15 late charges at the public library. Up to this point, I've been purposefully challenging you to make your best case for the University of Austin. But how would you answer those who think the solution to the problem of higher education today is not a university at all, but some other entrepreneurial model, whether, you know, trade schools, research institutes, decentralized online courses and forums, uh, or I suppose a public library card in the case of Goodwill Hunting? Uh, Why should parents and students choose a university in general? And how will the University of Austin in particular contribute to the value of universities as a whole? Look, I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to search for alternatives outside of the uh, system that we have of higher education. And I think for some people that is, um, that's a much better path for them to take. Um, However, um, you know, higher education is the endpoint of a process of maturation and development that begins, you know, (laughs) practically in the cradle. And um, in many ways, the reason that we have higher education is to take, to allow students who have mastered skills, um, come to understand the world in, in, uh, you know, in in terms of, you know, sciences, humanities, et cetera, um, uh, through their K through 12 education, the purpose of higher education is to turn a critical eye back upon everything that they've learned up to that point so they can be fully developed uh, adult human beings. Um, you need, for that to be achieved, the best way we can achieve that is through a community of, of fellow travelers and seekers, um, some of whom we call scholars, some of whom we call students, that, you know, that these individuals... Um, in searching for truth together, help each of us kind of sharpen our own skills individually. Um, so, you know, there's always going to be need for higher education. Um, but there, you know, if people can explore alternatives and find other ways to be flourishing in their life, I encourage them to do that. I mean, I think that's important. I'm curious uh, 
to find out. So this the University of Austin. Um, you are you are choosing to go the brick and mortar model um, in line with with what you just said. Uh, but why Austin? Um, of all locations in the country, even of all locations in Texas, uh, why Austin and not somewhere else? Uh, what is it about Austin that seems to be the right place uh, for the University of Austin? Austin right now is simply the most exciting, um, innovative, entrepreneurial place in the country, if not the world. Um, Austin, I call Austin sort of one great big maker space right now. People are pouring into Austin to start businesses, to embark on exciting technological ventures, to reshape K through 12 education. Austin is so filled right now with innovators and creative people. Um, and that's the spirit that we're trying to tap into. I also think um, the dynamics of Austin in some ways mirror the dynamics that we wanna have on our campus. Austin is a you know, very liberal progressive city in a conservative state. And because of that, you know, because it's sort of a blue city in a red state, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, people in Austin are constantly encountering people that they, um, that don't share their worldviews in both directions. And it really creates a very tolerant and open environment. Um, and, you know, we want to embed that kind of tolerance, that kind of, um, you know, that, that, that sense that, you know, uh, encountering difference is an everyday thing, a normal part of life. Um, want to embed that in the institution. So I think it's a good, it's a good fit for us on that front as well. I also wanted to ask, so you were formerly at St. John's. Uh, this is not, it's not your first rodeo in terms of uh, heading up a, a university or a college. Um, how does, how does your past experience relate to what you're doing now uh, and hoping to do with the University of Austin? St. John's is one of the most exceptional institutions in the world. I mean, it's just a, a wonderful place. Um, you know, if your listeners aren't aware, it's a great books college. Students essentially follow a single curriculum, read about 200 great books over four years. Um, it's a place where uh, you still have broad, um, let's say, uh, representation across every category, political faith, uh, and otherwise. Um, and it's a place where civil discourse is still the order of the day. Um, so carrying all that into from, you know, what's essentially a, a small great books college into a major comprehensive university is what we're trying to do. Trying to carry that spirit of, of civil discourse, productive dialogue, and, um, you know, and uh, a de-emphasizing of, uh, let's say, our concerns of the moment in favor of looking at the broadest possible scope of human experience and achievement. Um, that's all coming from St. John's into this institution. So you mentioned with with finances, with your principles in general, you want to be uh, pretty fiercely independent, um, in which case I presume you're not taking any federal loans money, that sort of thing. Um, correct me if I'm wrong in that, or state even. Um, but then what what options would there be for talented uh, but lower income uh, prospective students? Um, do you have a program set up in terms of scholarships, grants, uh, you know, that financial aid of your own? Um, is that built into the model uh, at this point? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Look, I was a first generation college student. Um, 
I was the recipient of scholarships that allowed me to go to college. Um, we are uh, 100% committed to making this education accessible to all students who want to seek it. Um, so we, we don't want financial um, barriers to get in their way. So we're, we're creating our own system of scholarships and aid and loans and that that will um, enable us to offer that to students. All right. Then how about, uh, we'll just end with a last word. What would be your your parting pitch for the University of Austin for any listeners? I would say what we're hoping to achieve with this new institution is to renew in higher education the commitment to ideas over ideology. Um, that, that we think that university should be the home of ideas, that ideas, that people should should live in universities with strong convictions lightly held, um, that uh, that civil discourse is the, the key component of a learning community and that civil discourse itself has three key components. One is intellectual humility. Two is the, the, the acknowledgement and acceptance of the, of the value and dignity of every human being. And three is a passion for truth. So if we can put those three things together and build an institution on those premises, we think we'll be offering something of value to the world. Dr. Canellis, thank you so much for joining us at Act in Line. Oh, my pleasure. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zsa. Zsa.